Acts 3. Last week, Peter and John are entering the temple. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is one of the two times of corporate prayer uh, for observant Jews. So Peter and John are walking into the temple to pray. They see a, a man who's crippled. We know from uh, later on in the story, we know he's been crippled since birth. He's over 40 years old, and he's sitting at a gate to beg. He's there regularly. There's this iconic exchange between Peter and this man. Peter looks straight at him, and he says, look at me. The guy looks at him expectantly, and then Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And then he reaches down, he pulls this guy up, and instantly the guy's feet and ankles are strengthened. He's able to walk. And he enters the temple for the first time in his whole life. Prior to that, he hasn't been allowed because he's been considered blemished. He hasn't been, excuse me, he hasn't been allowed to enter the temple since the first time he's actually entered into, at that point, the place where God dwells. And we said for us, one of the things we want to be thinking about is the clarity that Peter had in giving away uh, what God had given him. We want that same clarity. Peter knew what he had and he knew what he didn't have. I don't have money, but I do have this. And God's given each one of us gifts. He's given insight. He's given encouragement. He's given money. He's given compassion. He's given mercy. He's given service. He's given these different gifts. And we want to have clarity around what he's given to us so that we're intentionally looking to give that away as well. So we're going to pick up with Peter and John and this formerly crippled man now in the temple. Verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, so that's the man who was formerly crippled, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Jesus that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So Peter, there's a crowd. We'll see in a little bit. It's thousands. Several thousand people have gathered Everyone has seen this guy begging for years and years and years. They're all astounded. They're amazed. They're astonished at what God has done. And Peter asked a pretty obvious question. Why are you surprised? Maybe, well, it's rare for us to see somebody who's been crippled their whole life suddenly leaping and praising God. And Peter says, it's not us. We didn't do anything. We didn't. It's not our power. God has glorified Jesus by healing this man. This Jesus who just a couple of months ago, y'all remember he was here. You handed him over to be crucified. Three different times, Pilate tried to release him. And every time y'all said no, you remember that? You disowned him. Peter is reminding them. You can see the scripture there from Luke. Three different times on three occasions, Pilate said, I don't see any reason to charge this guy with anything. And every time they said no, crucify him. At one point, Pilate said, why don't I let him go? And they said, no, we'd rather have Barabbas, who was a known murderer. We'd rather you let that guy go than let Jesus go. Ultimately, you killed him. You didn't drive the nails through his hands. You're responsible for his death. That Jesus, that one you remember from a couple of months ago, that one, God raised him from the dead. John and I saw it. We're eyewitnesses. 
And this is confirming to you that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. The fact that this guy is now walking. He believed in the name of Jesus. He trusted in the name of Jesus. And he's walking now, which vindicates Jesus before all of you. Y'all all got it wrong. When we hear that idea, name of Jesus, that's not how we talk. That's a, a, a Hebraic idiom, name. You can see that as an umbrella. It encompasses everything that somebody is. It's shorthand for all of the different facets of Jesus' identity. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the earth. He's the, uh, he's the bridegroom. He's a healer. He's a savior. All of the things that you see on the screen, plus everything that you can think of that the New Testament says about him. When we say the name of Jesus, that's all of those things are encompassed under that umbrella. So Peter says he had faith, he trusted, that's what faith is. He trusted in who Jesus is and all of those things. And God glorified Jesus by healing him. Verse 17. Now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance. That's the most interesting phrase to me of this whole thing. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Y'all just saw the things up on the screen. That didn't look like ignorance to me. Ignorance is not having enough information. I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that God may send the Messiah, whom he, who he has appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to this prophet will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days... And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. God said to Abraham, through your offspring, Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent Jesus first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That idea to me of acting in ignorance, it's tough. Peter's just hung guilt on them. He said, y'all are responsible for this guy's death, but you acted in ignorant. You acted ignorantly. It's like you didn't know what you were doing, and I'm thinking, they seemed to know a lot what they were doing. They had three opportunities, and every time they just upped the ante till the end, it says they drown out Pilate. Pilate's trying to say, let's release him, and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. doesn't sound like people who didn't know what they were doing. At least they knew what they wanted in those moments. There's, a, there's a, an idea in Jewish thought, it's rooted in Numbers 15, that says certain sins cannot be forgiven. The old school way of talking about it, it's sin with a high hand. It's deliberate and willful disobedience. It's you know the rules and you're setting out intentionally to break them. So there's unintentional sin, things that I just do. I, I accidentally mix dairy and bread or whatever some of those Old Testament rules are. There's mildew on my clothes and I didn't handle it appropriately or I accidentally killed my neighbor's donkey. Those types of things are they're all kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament to take care of all that stuff. But these things that are done intentionally and purposely, you see there in Numbers 15, it says there's no guilt remains for those. That stuff, you're cut off from the people of God. And so Peter has just said, y'all, you killed the Messiah. This Jesus, God's raised him from the dead to vindicate him, 
Y'all were wrong about him completely and thoroughly. You disowned him. You handed him over to be crucified. You actually killed him. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon when he's speaking to this Jewish audience and he lays a similar charge on them. Their response, they're cut to the heart, the Bible says, and they cry out, what should we do? What they're saying is we don't, we don't know where to turn. If we've killed the Messiah, if we've rejected the one sent by God to save us, what hope do we have? In their minds, this is, they're falling under Numbers 15. What are we supposed to do? How do we, where's the hope for us if we killed the one who God came to bring hope to us? And so what Peter, I think, is saying here is, yes, you acted ignorantly. You still have a chance, is what he's saying. There's still hope for you. You're not permanently cut off. Ephesians 4.18 talks about ignorance, speaking about Gentiles, ignorance that's rooted in hard-heartedness, ignorance that's rooted in a lack of sensitivity to the Lord. And I think that's what's going on here. You remember in in, uh, Jesus' ministry, there's a time where he's teaching in parables, and the disciples say, why are you talking in parables? Talk straight to us. And this is Matthew 13 where he explains why. Though seeing they don't see... That's the general Jewish population. Though hearing, they don't hear or understand. In them is fulfilled this prophecy. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Why? This people's heart has become calloused. That's why they can see and not perceive and hear and not understand. It's because their heart has become hard or calloused. They're not sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. That was the condition of many of the people Jesus spoke to. And, I, and what Peter, I think, is saying is that's, that's y'all. You're hard-hearted. The reason you were ignorant was not because of a lack of information. Jesus didn't do anything in a corner. He said, I'm not doing anything in a corner. Everything I've done, I've done out in the open for everybody to see. He spent three years preaching and teaching and healing, traveling around, public ministry, as public as you can get, open-air ministry. He wanted people to respond positively to him. And the reason many people didn't, it's not because they didn't see what Jesus was doing. It's not because they didn't hear what Jesus was saying. It's because their hearts were hard. And so they couldn't receive it. And I think Peter's saying that's where your ignorance is rooted in. It's rooted in the fact that you've got hard hearts, calloused hearts. It's not, again, a lack of information. It's a lack of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And so there's opportunity for you. Repent. Move from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God. That's the action for you, to repent. A lot of that's a mental process. You disagreed with who God said Jesus was. God said, Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah, Savior of the world. You said, blasphemer, heretic, sent by the devil. So what you need to do is acknowledge that you were wrong and repent. Agree with God. These things are true. All that stuff that was on the screen. That's what's true about who Jesus is. And then turn to him. Or that word can also mean return to him, which is appropriate for a Jewish context. The people of God. Turn back to him. Both of those things kind of mean the same thing. But I don't want us to think repentance is only in our head. It's a complete reorientation of our life. A turning, a 180 degree turn from one way to the other. And that's what Peter's saying. That's your action. Things are not hopeless for you. Yes, you killed him, but God in his mercy has made a way for you. Just repent. Agree with who God says Jesus is. 
turn back to him, and here are the things God's going to do for you. He's going to wipe out your sin. That word wipe out is super strong. He's going to obliterate your sin. He's going to erase it. He's going to remove it as far as the east is from the west. You don't feel guilty about this any longer. He's going to send times of refreshing to you. And in the future, Jesus is going to return and restore all things. You can have a taste of these times of refreshing now. You can have a taste of him restoring all things now. But it won't, those things won't fully happen until Jesus returns. And then because he's speaking to a Jewish audience, he supports all of that from the Old Testament. Remember Moses, first prophet we had, Moses. He said there'd be another prophet after him. That's Jesus. Samuel, the second prophet we had, he spoke about the the kingdom of David. This guy, Jesus, he's the son of David. And every prophet after him, after Samuel, has talked about these times. They've all foretold these times that we're living in. Go all the way back to Abraham, the, the founder of our faith. God said to him, through your offspring, singular, that's Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God so loves you, Jews. That he sent Jesus to you first. We'll see as we go through Acts, eventually the gospel moves to Gentile areas as well. But what Peter's saying, first y'all, you get first shot at this. And your hope, again, you haven't lost all hope. Just repent and turn to him. And then all of these things will be yours. Chapter 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guards and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking. To the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. It's 3,000 when we looked last week. Now we're at 5,000. These huge chunks of people are saying yes to the Lord. They're all Jewish people at this point, Jewish re- religious practices at this point is segregated, male, female. And so Peter and John are speaking to men. It doesn't mean there weren't any women who responded. Most likely there weren't any women in the audience because Peter and John were men. And so they were speaking to the men at this point. So we have Sadducees who are religious leaders who don't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees do. Sadducees don't. Pharisees are kind of other people. Sadducees are aristocratic. They run the temple. The the highest level leadership in the temple are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. And Peter's saying, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he's saying, we're living in the end times. And that's causing an uproar and a ruckus. And the Sadducees not only don't believe in the resurrection, they want to keep the peace with the Roman government. And so they arrest Peter and John. And we'll look next week at how that trial goes. But they're trying to clamp down on things. We haven't seen that up to this point. The last thing we saw, a public word about what about Christianity, about the gospel moving, was that the favor of all people was on the church. And we see, well, there were some folks who opposed uh, what God was doing through this first band of Christians. And again, we'll look at that more next week. But I was thinking about this. The thing that jumped out at me was Peter's first question. Why are you surprised? That word surprise can be marveled. Why why are you amazed? Why are you marveling at this? And I was thinking about my own life, and I was kind of flipping it around. So Peter's looking at this Jewish audience and saying, why are y'all surprised that this man is now walking? Jesus, he raised him from the dead. We saw it just a couple of months ago. If he can raise somebody from the dead, getting a guy to walk is not a huge deal. And we've got three years of Jesus doing this kind of stuff, healing people and walking on water and opening the eyes of the blind. Like, why is any of this shocking to you? 
that God would work through Jesus. Even though Jesus is now ascended to heaven, why would it shock you that God would work through him? And I've thought about that for me, not why are you surprised, but when was the last time I was surprised? When was I last amazed by the Lord? Not guilt-inducing, just thinking about that. Last week we closed with this verse from um, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours. And then that last phrase, that he may fulfill every act prompted by your faith. That God would fulfill every act prompted by your faith. When I think about Peter's encounter with this crippled man, I don't think it was the faith of the crippled man that led to his healing. To me, there's no indication that the man had any relationship with Jesus at all, that he'd ever heard the gospel. I don't think there was time in this initial exchange for him to develop trust in Jesus. I think it was Peter. I think it was an act prompted by Peter's faith. I think Peter knew what God had given to him, and he sees a guy who needs it, and so he says, I've got something for you. Get up and walk, and he reaches down, and he pulls the guy up. I think the act was prompted by Peter's faith. The crippled man was absolutely receptive. There may have been dozens of crippled people, dozens of lame people, dozens of people who were begging. I don't know. And the Holy Spirit led Peter to this one. That's speculative. I don't know. Yes, he was receptive. But I think it was an act prompted by Peter's faith. Peter initiates. He looks at this guy first. He initiates the conversation. It's an act prompted by Peter's faith. And I think about, man, when was the last time I legitimately did something prompted by my faith? I'm not pulling anybody out of a wheelchair. I'm just talking about mustard seeds. When was the last time? God amazed all of these people. Peter, I think, expected it. Everybody else is blown away. They're astonished. They're marveling at what God has done because of this act of faith or this act prompted by Peter's faith. Peter gave God something to work with, if that makes sense. His step of faith gave God an opportunity to amaze other people. And I think about, for me, when was the last time, again, not trying to get a headline, just wondering, when was the last time there was something that I did that was legitimately prompted by faith? And I think about, again, mustard seeds for me. So I challenged you last week, do one thing. I don't know if any of you did. One thing that you would say is prompted by the fact that I'm trusting Jesus is the Lord. One act that's prompted by the fact that you're trusting that Jesus is a healer. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. That Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. One thing that you're doing that you would explicitly tie into trusting some truth about who Jesus is. That whole idea of trusting in the name, this umbrella of all, who, of all the things that encompass. This is who Jesus is. Any acts this week that you would say, I did this because I'm trusting Jesus to be fill in the blank, who he says he is. And so for me, they're super small. I went to a meeting. It's not very much. I'm an introvert. So for me to be around people, that's an act of faith. I went to a board of education meeting on Tuesday. If you're familiar with any of the things that have been going on in the Marietta City school system, Marietta had a black principal, a lady. Marietta High School did. And the school board moved her after one year. And uh, it's caused all kinds of tension in our city. And I, I don't know why they moved her, and we'll never know. Those matters are sealed, personnel matters, but I trust the school board. And so I'd say, yeah, I trust them that they did the right thing. And I fully get 
while there's an entire community that says, I don't trust them. Because I look up there and there's six white people and one black person and the vote was six to one. And so I'm not sure that that was a great idea. And so I can, I get that. And so I went to this meeting just to hear, like, what, what are we saying and what are we doing? And there were about 25 people who spoke and the majority of them were black students who were saying, she was my principal and she's gone. And so for me, that was, a, that was an act for me, prompted by faith, saying I'm going to put myself in the middle of this as a white guy who doesn't know anything about anything and try to see if I can figure out what does it look like in our city. Where's this, how deep does this fissure go? And there was one lady who spoke, and she moved me. And so I asked him, I said, here's her name. See if you can find her address. And I wrote her a letter. That's an introvert thing to do. I didn't call her. I don't even think I left a return address on the left. <laughs> but I wrote her. Mustard seeds. Little things. Not to pat those are small. You're like, man, if that's if that's what we got, not good. <laughs> what about you? Any acts prompted by your faith this week? Anything that you're doing explicitly because Jesus is fill in the blank. Those are opportunities for him to act will result in other people, maybe yourself, marveling at what he's doing. We're not going for headlines. We're not going for 2,000 people to say yes. We're not pulling guys out of wheelchairs. All that's incredible, and absolutely we want to believe to the point that we can say yes to those things. But we're starting with mustard seeds, and that's the challenge for us. Any acts prompted by your faith? When was the last time that you were amazed by God. I was thinking about that from the other angle. Peter says to these guys, you acted in ignorance. I think it was rooted in hard-heartedness. So repent. I'm going, where, where am I disagreeing with God? Right now, I, none of us live in full agreement with him. Where am I disagreeing with him? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need times of refreshing to come? I can think about one for me. For you, it may be different. God may speak to you and say, you're disagreeing with me about how you date. And you need to fix it. You're disagreeing with me about how you spend your money. You're disagreeing with me about what you can watch on TV. You're disagreeing with me about how you treat your wife or whether you should forgive somebody or how you should do your job. Any of those things. He may be convicting you. And we'll take some time at the end for him to speak to you about where you're disagreeing with him. I was, I've been thinking about where I'm disagreeing with him. You know, in Jesus' farewell discourse, this is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those five chapters. This all happens the last night of Jesus' life. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when we read about the Last Supper, it's a skeleton. They're primarily concerned with the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is my body, this is my blood. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on. John doesn't. John gives tons of detail on Jesus' last word to these 11 disciples. Judas is gone at this point. I don't know if it's word for word, but it's a lot of content. You can go back and read those five chapters. In those five chapters, six different times Jesus says something like this. I will do whatever you ask in my name. Ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. You didn't choose me. I chose you to bear fruit. So ask whatever you want and my Father will give it to you. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Truly I tell you my Father will give you whatever you ask. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. John gets it, so that in 1 John, a letter that he wrote after Jesus' resurrection, he says, We have confidence before God 
and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. His command is to believe in the name of Jesus and to love our neighbors. Six times in one talk to his 11 disciples, his final talk to them before he's crucified. Six different times he says, you ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. You think that's important? Six times. I disagree with him on that, if I'm honest. That is not a place where I would say, 100. yes, I am confident that God will give me what I ask if I ask in the name of Jesus. I'm not 100% confident. Half the time, I'm not sure I'm 50% confident in that. That's an area where I'm disagreeing with God, and I'm trying to grow in that area over the last several months. I don't know where you disagree, but this is one maybe for you to think about. It was important to Jesus six times in his final words to say. I don't want to give a ton of qualifications because Jesus doesn't give a lot of qualifications. He says, remain in me. That's relational. You stay connected to me. Ask for whatever you want. My Father will do it because it glorifies him. So things that don't glorify God, okay, that's out. If I'm disconnected from Jesus, I can't expect him to respond. What does it mean to ask for things in his name? Yes, according to his character. These are the kinds of things that Jesus would ask for. Also to ask in the authority that he's given to us. He said, in my name you will drive out demons, heal the sick, preach the gospel. So there's some authority that we have that he's given to us. So in the name of Jesus we have authority. According to the name of Jesus, his character and nature, we're asking things. I've been thinking about out there much more so than just personally. I think that's a good place to start. Because sometimes it's easier for us to ask for others than to ask for ourselves. I've been thinking, anything I ask, so a city in the deep south, I can ask for black and white. I can ask for that. And he says, whatever you ask. We know that's in the heart of God. We know it is. We're saying our Father, and Zion two blocks down is saying our Father. We're talking to the same God. So that makes us brothers and sisters. So there's something there for us. And I don't have a clue what that means. It doesn't have to take 50 years. Whatever we ask in his name. And we know that's something that he values. Some of you, you're thinking it's human trafficking or it's every child to have a loving family or it's someone who you love who's distant from Jesus or it's someone who's sick who you want to see healed. All of those things are in the heart of God. Whatever you ask in his name. You'll have it. Do you agree with him about that? I started reading this book three weeks ago. I read it twice. Praying Hide. So nobody's picture from the late 1800s looks... I've never seen a pretty person from that time frame. I don't know if that's a drawing or a picture, but either way, don't hold them against him. The tough mustache he has there as well. His name's John Hyde. He was a missionary in India from 1892 to 1910. And he became known as Praying Hyde. He spent so much time praying. Now, he was unusual. So if you wind up reading this, I don't want you to take him as your model and say, I'm going to try to model my prayer life after him. He, he had a special calling on his life. He, he actually didn't get married. And he said, the reason I'm not getting married is I don't want anybody or anything to come between me and Jesus. And he would spend days without sleeping, without eating, because he prayed. But again, that was a special calling on his life. 
But one thing I noticed as I was reading about him that did compel me and challenge me, again, regardless of hours and time, was he, he grabbed a hold of God in some ways that I, I don't in prayer. And I think that was the challenge for me. He got whatever I asked in your name, I will receive. He was, again, a missionary in India, and he noticed there weren't a lot of people coming to faith. They had workers, and they didn't have a lot of people coming to faith. And he said, we've got to start praying. And so he created, it was called a convention. I think that's what we would call a conference. So once a year, all the workers from this uh, region would come together. The Indian and the expat workers would all come together. And what they wound up doing at this convention, again, I would call it a conference, is they just mostly, they prayed. The whole point was to encourage one another. And towards the end of it, he started this in 1904, 1908, 1909, 1910. There was legitimate revival in this area. And millions of Indians came to know the Lord. But specifically, when I think about John Hyde, 1908, he kind of got this thing in his heart that said, I want to see one person a day come to faith. And so in 1908, he led 400 people to the Lord, one person a day. And then he comes back to this conference in 1909, and he gets in his heart, I want to see two people a day come to the Lord. And in 1909, he led 800 people to the Lord. He was deaf. It took him a long time to learn the local language. He had a hard time hearing people. And he's used powerfully by the Lord. He was not your typical evangelistic missionary. Then he comes back in 1910, and he says, four. That's what I'm, I want to see. And he led 1,600 people to the Lord in 1910. Can you imagine that? One guy, and it's not like he wasn't, I'm not holding him up as a model. I'm saying he got whatever I asked for. And if, if, if it would got to the end of the day and he hadn't met the quota, he just didn't go to sleep. He just prayed and went back out and started talking to people. Until he found somebody who said yes. And these weren't just easy yeses. This was, and he said it's people who said yes to Jesus and are ready to be baptized. I mean, these were serious commitments to following the Lord. And it's not mass conversions. Again, not holding him up as a model, but saying the challenge for me. What does it look like to grab hold of God at that level and say whatever we ask, we can have. We're asking in his name. Now, his name is not... A magic formula, tacking in Jesus' name on the end. It doesn't work. There's an interesting story in Luke 19. We'll get there next year, when we, or excuse me, in Acts 19. Uh, we'll get there later. There are these seven Jewish men who may have a good heart. I don't know. They're the sons of Sceva, which is a tough name to start with. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So I'll say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. That's great. People are demon-possessed. We want them free. They saw that Paul and other Christians were effective in using the name of Jesus, so they said, hey, we'll do that too. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish priests, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating, all seven of them, that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's a bad ministry experience <laughs> for people. How about that idea? Jesus I know. 
I heard of Paul. Who are you? It's not a magic formula. Remain in me. There's this idea of relationship. That's the key for us, remaining in him. The thing about hide, hours in prayer, deep relationship, deep connection. I'm not saying hours, I'm saying connection for us. What does that mean for you? Anything you ask, you're connected. It's yours. You get intimidated, that idea, who are you? You know who you are? You've been, you said yes to Jesus. You're a son or you're a daughter of the king. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. You're a carrier, a vessel of the Holy Spirit. You're one who's empowered and authorized by the Lord of life to preach the good news and to heal the sick and to drive out demons and to see racial reconciliation and make sure every child has a loving family and all these other things that are stirring around in your heart. You don't need to be intimidated by anyone or by anything. But I do want you to hear the challenge. When was the last time you were amazed? What would it look like for you to do something prompted by your faith this week? Give God the opportunity to amaze you again. Let's pray. God, we don't want to be headline seekers for sure, but I don't think that's the ditch most of us will fall into. Most of us tend to shrink back. We don't overstep our bounds. We don't even come close to living the full life that you have for us. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would lead us during this time. Just a couple of questions for you maybe to be thinking about before the Lord. Is there a place where you're disagreeing with God? Just ask him that if you're willing to be convicted. God, where am I disagreeing with you? Don't ask unless you want to know. Something may have flashed across your mind, and if you're willing, you just confess. God, I confess that in this area I'm disagreeing with you. And I repent of that. I'm moving from disagreeing to agreeing. And now I want to reorient my life towards you. I want to turn towards you in this area again. So show me what are the concrete steps. Is there a conversation I need to have? Is there activity I need to stop? Is there something I need to start? Pray that you would give me grace, that you would empower me to be obedient. Fill me with your spirit so I can be obedient in this area. Let me ask you this. Maybe you can ask the Lord. God, can you show me acts prompted by my faith? Stink mustard seeds. When was the last time? What about the next time? God, I pray if you're willing. I want to commit to living a life that regularly includes acts prompted by the fact that I'm trusting in you, Jesus, as a Savior, as a healer, as the cornerstone, as the first and the last, whatever it is, God, I'm praying 
that I would often engage in acts prompted by the fact that I'm trusting in you, Jesus. And I pray that you would use at least some of those, not to make a name for me, but to make a name for you. That other people would marvel, just like they did in Acts 3, that they would marvel at who you are, not who I am, at who you are. God, that you would work in the lives of individuals and even this city. God, I pray specifically for each one of us that we would all grow in our understanding of who you are and what you're inviting us into, this bold invitation to ask whatever we want, and you'll give it to us. God, absolutely, you purify our motives if that needs to happen. I feel like for most of us, it's, just a, it's a question of boldness persistence in prayer. So would you convince us, God, give us grace to comprehend the vastness of your love for us. And out of that understanding and comprehension of how much you love us, will we begin to ask for all of these things that are stirring in our hearts to see you do in our lives and in the lives of those who we love in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you've got going on. But we would love to pray with you if any of this stuff about acts prompted by your faith and pressing in more in prayer, if any of that stuff stirs you, we'd love to pray with you about that. So you guys can stand. Ministry teams, if y'all come on, and Bo will dismiss us after this song.